you so much for joining us this week at Zion City Church with teachings from Pastor Andrew Rael. We believe that God still speaks through His Word and His people. So right now, lean in and listen to the Holy Spirit. We hope that this message encourages you, inspires you, and brings you into a deeper love and worship of Jesus. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a part of Zion City Church. So Exiles and Empires, this is the series that we've been going through, and uh, the first week we talked about what it means to be a creative minority, and what that looks like for us, and what a creative minority is. The next week we talked about our identity, and how all that we do, and the decisions that we make are born out of who we think we are fundamentally. And today we're going to be talking about purpose. Now, there are songs out there that when they come on, they just do something to you, you know what I'm saying? Um, Songs that... When you first hear it for the first time, either you laugh or you cry or it's like this, this time warp of nostalgia, right? You hear a song that comes on and it takes you immediately back to a moment and a space in time because songs are fundamentally stories and they have this unique power of drawing us in and reminding us of a time, a place, or, or even describing how it is that we are currently feeling. I want you to think about a time that you were last deeply moved by something. Whether it be a movie, a song, a story, a book, whatever it was. And I want you to think about those moments. Because in those moments, you are feeling uh, when someone taps into your experience. You know, when you hear a song that just adequately puts to words how you've been feeling, right? Whether joy or sorrow or angst, you know, kind of just adequately describes how you feel. Or you watch this movie and you find yourself totally invested in these characters. And at the end, you're crying or whatever because it's over and you're sad. Or the book, as you come to those last pages, you're like, it's over? Like, there's not more. And immediately you're Googling if there was a follow-up book or whatever. Because human beings are fundamentally creatures of story. This is what's driven us from the beginning of time is story. Before there was ever TV or, or you know, um, iTunes or any of those things, early, early, early of our ancestors would gather around and the older would tell the younger stories about their people, about where they've come from, about what it means to be who they are because we are fundamentally people of story. Stories are the language of our soul. They draw us in. They bring us close. Now, recently, a story that has deeply impacted me, um, if you've been here for any amount of time, the last several weeks, I've been quoting Martin Luther King Jr. or talking about him all the time because the last several months, I've just been infatuated with this guy's life. And it was all born out of a documentary I watched called King in the Wilderness, which I'd highly recommend. But there's this scene that, um, and my wife contested this, that absolutely just wrecked me when I saw it. He had been leading the civil rights movement amongst other movements, movements to efforts to help the poor, uh, movements against the war in Vietnam, some different other movements, and he had been doing that for 12 years. And all the people around him had sensed that he was just getting exhausted. Can you imagine everywhere you go, there are people adamantly criticizing you, yelling at you, screaming at you, calling for threats against you and your family? And he had kind of come to the place where he had thought, like, is my time done? Like, am I just, like, have I just tapped out? I mean, 12 years of you know, pedal to the metal, guns blazing for these movements. And all of his team around him was trying to encourage him, take a sabbatical, like rest, like you don't have to do this anymore. We got other leaders in the movement who could take the mantle, etc. When Martin Luther King Jr. Was a, was a child, he had always had dreamed of being a pastor of a church. And he was a pastor of the church he co-pastored with his father. But he always dreamed of, of pastoring in an influential city in a big place and being able to, 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 to live out that calling. And there was a church in uh, New York called Riverside Baptist Church in Manhattan. And it was a big key church in all the civil rights movements and stuff that was taking place. And they actually offered him a job to be the full-time pastor, to take over the reins of that church. And, and really, in his mind, settle into like some sort of normal life, right? Where he could just pastor and do the things he loved and enjoy himself. But when the job offer came across the table, he didn't even give it the time of day. Because he said, as much as I would love to go and pastor this church and sail into a beautiful retirement. He says, I have a calling on my life. And the people in his circle closely remember him saying, not many of us will live to 50, so we must live well. A few weeks later, he's killed. It was this moment where I'm weeping, right? Just boogers, not, like, this is so, you know? Because for the first time, I felt 
someone who could relate to the, the burden, the desire that I have for our church. There could be a thousand other things that we could be doing and be putting our energy and efforts to. There's been all sorts of obstacles that have come in our way, but it's kind of just like when Jesus tells his disciples, um, are you going to leave too after a crowd leaves? And Peter says, Lord, where are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. It's that kind of just like, what else am I going to do? Can I just go work a nine to five and just like hang out? And I, I couldn't. I couldn't live with myself. I couldn't sleep at night. And it was that same calling that he had in his life that I felt so similarly for our church. But it's these impactful stories that put to language that adequately describe how we feel. Now, he was assassinated 52 years ago. I never knew him. I never saw a speech live. I was never a part of the movement. But a moment like that has deeply impacted me. Whether history or fiction, stories have a way of shaping us. All of these stories have a unique power to shape us because stories are the language of the soul. As human beings, we're wired for stories and for storytelling. Think about the, the great expression of human beings is art, right? And that's music, painting, movies, books, even social media. All of it is a form of storytelling. Bobette Buster says this, narrative is our culture's currency or story is our culture's currency. Whoever tells the best story wins. Last week, we talked about our identity and how the stories we believe about ourselves influences every decision that we make. And that for Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they knew that they were seen, known, valued, and loved by the God of heaven. That no matter what Babylon did to them, they could never change who they are. So they refused the king's food, remember, as an act of protest, saying, you know, you may think you're king of the universe, and you may think that we have to live up, but we don't. There is one who's above you, and he is the one whom we serve. And here in our text this morning, we are having a new story that's being framed for us, one about purpose. Because once we discover who it is we are, the next question is, well, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do here now? We define a creative minority as this, a, a committed community of Jesus faithfully living into the compelling story of God against all odds for the sake of the city. A committed community of Jesus faithfully living into the compelling story of God against all odds for the sake of the city. What is the story of God? What is this compelling story of God and how do we partner with it? Now, briefly, we're going to look, we're going to go through this passage in Daniel chapter 2, which is the largest passage, so I'm going to ask you to buckle up. we got 49 verses to go through, and we're going to go through pretty quickly. I'm a fast talker, so in luck for us, you have me at 1.5 speed. But after we finish that, we're going to come back through and talk about implications. Deal? You ready? You buckled up? You ready to go? Let's do this. Daniel chapter 2. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. Verse 2, so the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in, they stood before the king. He said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, may the king live forever. Tell your servant the dream, and we will interpret it. The king replied to his astrologers, this is what I firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have to cut you into pieces and your house will be turned into rubble, into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more, the servants replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are going to try and gain time because you, re you realize that this is what I firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it. The astrologers answered the king, There's no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. 
So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and the men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. So, must have been a pretty bad dream, right? So this king has this dream. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and it's keeping him tossing and turning all night long. And so he says, I need to bring in my spiritual advisors. So he brings in this council of guys, and he's like, I've had an awful dream. I want you to tell me what it means. And they're like, oh, yes, please tell us your dream. We'll tell you whatever it means, right? Whether his teeth are falling out or whatever, you know. You're anxious about a decision that's going to come up or whatever. And so he says, uh, they say, tell us whatever the dream that you had is. He's like, here's the caveat. I've decided firmly in my mind, I'm stubborn, I'm not going to change, so don't ask. But, right, here's the deal. You have to tell me what I dreamed and then tell me what it means. The astrologers and the the spiritual councils, huh? (laughs) What? You have to tell me what I dreamed and then tell me what it means. And they're like, "Just, just tell us the dream and then we can, you know, figure it out later. You know, we'll tell you what it means. And he says, you're trying to buy more time. He says, here's the deal. If you can't tell me what I dreamed, I'm going to wipe you out, and I'm going to destroy your whole family. A little bit cranky, right? And then he says, or, he says, if you can't do it, he says, then you're going to get a bunch of cash and a lot of gifts and want to celebrate and have a big party. Your move, right? Talk about high risk, high reward kind of a situation. And they're like, what you ask is insane. Nobody could do that. And when we read the Bible again, it's always really important that we just put ourselves in the story. Imagine you're one of these spiritual advisors to the king, right? And let's say I'm the king, and I'm like, tell me what I dreamed last night. You'd be, uh, uh, I don't know. I had to, there'd be no way for you to know. So they're trying to buy time, trying to get something out of the king, right? Because if not, they're getting cut into pieces, and their houses will be turned into piles of rubble. I mean, that's a pretty legit threat. Um, so if they, don't, if they don't tell the king what it is that, that he's dreamed, it means ultimately their demise. And so he's, they're like, please just give us some time. Give us a little bit more. You're asking something too impossible. He says, you know what? I'm done. You're all dead, right? So this is the kind of king that he is. You think you have a bad boss, right? Imagine being called in the office and said, tell me what I dreamed last night, or I'm going to fire you. I'm going to destroy your whole family, and everything will be ruined. Or you get a promotion. You choose, right? So I don't want to hear about complaining about bosses because this is who they had to serve was Nebuchadnezzar. Now, this position is put before them, and if not, they, they aren't able to answer the king, so he says, you know what, you're all done. Pfft, wipes them all out. But then he makes a decree. Not just you, four, five, whatever that I had brought to the room, but every last one of you. I'm going to do the whole department. Now, Daniel chapter 1 ended with Daniel and his buddies getting a promotion. Does anyone remember what they got promoted to? This category of people, spiritual advisors. So unbeknownst to them, they're just having a good Monday morning, drinking their coffee, having a good thing. They're across the kingdom. Someone ruined it for all of them and is going to get them all killed. This is all what's happening in the scene. Here's what happens next. Verse uh, 14. So when Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had, come, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Ariok then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for more time that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning the mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed and the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So can you imagine Daniel's at his house hanging out, had a good day at work, whatever, gets a knock at the door. He looks at the peephole. It's the king's assassin. Why is he here? You know? And just open it with the chain lock. Yes. You know? Hey, man, just want to let you know, king just decided all of you are going to die. All right? So that's what's going to happen. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news. And Daniel's like, hold on, hold on, time out. And I love what the Bible says. He spoke with wisdom and tact. I have no idea what Daniel did here, but some sort of verbal judo to buy him some sort of more time. Hold on, time out, time out, bro. We're homies. We don't have to do this. Come on, let's talk. Let's talk this out. Right? He's like, let me just talk to the king. Give me some more time to get this figured out. We'll get the whole situation resolved. So he goes to the king, and he asks the king for more time. The king's like, yeah, sure, whatever. You have some more time. He goes back to his friends. He shuts the door and says, oh, my gosh, dude. We have this impossible task in front of us. They're like, so tell us what the damage is. Well, we have to tell the king what he dreamed and then interpret it. They're like, well, this is it. There we go. We're going to die. No. They begin to pray. They're like, look, this is it. Last chance resort. Hey, we got to come. We got to pray. We got to ask God to move. We got to ask God to do something because if not, our backs are against the wall. There's death or making something up, right? And so they plead with the God of heaven. They plead with him to speak to them about the dream. 
And this will be a common theme that we see throughout the book of Daniel. That Daniel and his friends are constantly going to have their backs against the wall. And God is going to have to continually have to show up in a supernatural way. Now, this is my desire for us to live in a similar manner as the church. Not that every single moment for us is life and death, but this kind of wholehearted dependence on God. Now, notice it wasn't Daniel trusting in himself or Mishael and Azariah and Hananiah, like trying to concoct a story of, well, what are the common most dreams people have? And what if we, you know, what if we speak very vaguely and generally about the dream? And maybe we could, you're worried about something, and in the dream, something scary happened, right? They're not going to speak in these vague generalities. They need specific answers. And so they come to the God of wisdom. There's this, without even skipping a beat, that's, let's come together, let's pray. Not concoct a story, not try to scheme our way out, not let's pack our bags, maybe we can ditch or get out of the gate before God sees us. There's, let's come to the God of heaven. Because our God is the God who hears. And this is really important, that even in Babylon, even in impossible odds, our God is the God who hears our prayers. He's the one who hears and he responds. And so Daniel and his friends come and they ask him. You may feel that there's been times in your life where you've been in impossible situations. Where it's, I don't know what to do. Someone comes and asks you, hey, I know like you follow Jesus and you love God. I have this incredibly impossible, can you tell me what to do? Have you prayed? You know, it's like uh, there's these impossible situations that we find ourselves in, whether there's a a complex situation at work or in family dynamics. And the first thing that we do is we come to the drawing board and try to pull something out of ourselves rather than saying, let's come and let's pray. And man, this this is a model for how we walk in wisdom. We gather around with other people who love Jesus and we ask them to pray with us for our situation. And then we listen. And guess what? God is generous with his wisdom. James says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives it generously without finding fault and it will be given to you. You want wisdom? Ask God. He's generous. He's happy to give his wisdom. And so God shows up powerfully for Daniel and his friends. Notice notice what happens next. Verse 19, during the night, The mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision that Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. So Daniel goes to bed that night, which I don't know how this dude slept, right? And that high of tensions, but God gives him a vision, a dream, and he says, this is exactly what the king dreamed, and this is what it means. Can you imagine waking up with the kind of confidence that Daniel had? You know, it's like waking up is like he answered very specifically about what this is because Daniel understood something. He understood that from God comes all wisdom and all power. All wisdom and all power come from above. They don't come from within. They don't come from us gathering together and putting our... They come from above. And we need to be people who go there first. Now notice, the first thing that Daniel does before he goes and tells the king is he what? He responds with praise. He responds in thanksgiving. He says, God... This is who you are. Sometimes I forget. Sometimes I get confused, but you're the one. You're the one who knows things that nobody can know. You're the one who can do things that nobody can do. You're the one that we look to here in Babylon. Check out the king's dream in verse 24. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute them, execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret this, his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king answered Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, Are you able to interpret what I saw in my dream? Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, nor enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what has happened in days to come. Your dream and the visions that you have passed through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come. 
And the revealer of mysteries showed you what it is that's going to happen. As for me, the mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know what the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Your majesty looked and there before him was a large statue, an enormous dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet of iron and partly baked of clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, not by human hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like a chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them all away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. So Daniel comes and tells the king. But I love what Daniel does before he says anything about the dream. The king asks him, so you're the guy. You're the one who could tell me about this dream and then interpret it. Daniel's like, actually, no, I'm not the guy. But there's a God. There is a God in heaven who can reveal all things. He says, so it's not about me. Daniel didn't come in. King, got you covered, bro. You know, he's like, man, it's God. He, he, he showed me. He told me, and this is the guy who, and, and the reason was not because I have greater wisdom. God didn't do this so that I could just show you how awesome I am because he wants you to know the meaning of the dream because it has great importance to you. And so he says, tell me the dream. So Daniel's like, all right, here's a dream. You're standing there and you see this big, huge statue. And the statue's made up of all these precious metals right at the top is gold, and the chest and the, uh, the, chest and the arms were silver, then the belly and the, the thighs were bronze, and then the, the legs were iron, and the feet were mixed of uh, iron and clay. And it's this big, huge, marvelous statue. Nebuchadnezzar stands and sees it, and then suddenly it says a, a rock that was cut out of a big piece, of, like a big boulder was cut out, and it was thrown at this statue. And it hit the statue in the feet, and the whole statue fell, shattered all into all sorts of pieces. And that's the dream. And so Daniel goes on to interpret his dream here uh, in the next verse, following verse 36. He says this, This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind, all the beasts of the fields and birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them. You are that head of gold. I want you to take that phrase and tuck it in your back pocket. We're going to come back to that in a minute. After you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there'll be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes are partly baked of clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some strength of iron in it. Even as you saw iron mixed with clay, as the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will be left to another people. It will crush all of the kingdoms and bring to an end and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. So it's a lot of like crazy dream thing, and you're like, okay, what does this mean, you know? So Daniel explains, Nebuchadnezzar, the top path is gold, and guess what? That's you. So if there's anything to stroke Nebuchadnezzar's, you know, ego, it's that. It's like, bro, there's all these good medals. You know what the best one is? Gold. And guess which one you are? Bro, you're gold. You know, he says, and you're king of kings. Now, I know my faithful Christians are like, Jesus is king of kings. Nebuchadnezzar, I understand, right? What he's saying is that Nebuchadnezzar has authority. He has power. It's important that we're not naive about that, right? He really does have the influence. I mean, a bunch of people just died because he was grumpy about them not being able to remember his dream, right? He's got power in his hands. And what's described of him is that he has authority and dominion over all people and birds and, and animals in the field. And you're like, that's kind of weird. Like, I didn't think he had, we'll come back to that. It's an important Easter egg that we'll come back to in a moment. But he says, you have all this authority and this power. He says, and this, the nature of this dream 
is not one that's happening now, but one that's going to come. And he says that every single one of the pieces is actually a kingdom that's going to follow after you. There'll be a kingdom that's going to be represented by the silver and the bronze and the iron and then the iron mixed with clay. He says all of these are representatives of kingdoms that are going to happen after you. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom is the best. He's like, but... All these kingdoms can come after you. He says, and then there's this rock that's going to smash the statue. And when it smashes the statue, all of those kingdoms will come to an end. And he says, and that rock will actually become a mountain. And that kingdom that's been established will endure forever. There'll never be another one after it. That will be the kingdom. And he says, this is the nature of the dream. What is he talking about? This is right here an image of all the kingdoms of the world with power, with authority, and you could even throw America into this statue. It is representation of the kingdoms of men. Now, there's all kinds of conversations about who those kingdoms are and which one they, is it Rome, is it Greece, is it Persia? And we'll have that conversation a little bit later on in Daniel specifically about these kingdoms. But here's what you need to know. What God is trying to tell Nebuchadnezzar is this. You think you're king of the world, you're not. All of these kingdoms, including your own, will fall. Because there's another kingdom that's coming. The kingdom of God. And it will destroy all previous kingdoms and it will be established. And guess what? It's never going to end. It's going to be forever. And it's going to be established like a rock. And it will grow from being a, from being a large, you know, a meteorite to being an entire mountain that is unshakable and immovable. And so the first thing we have to understand that God's telling Nebuchadnezzar is, hey, be mindful of your authority. Be mindful of your responsibility. What a great responsibility that you have. There will be kingdoms that will come after you, but there, will be, but there will be a kingdom that will come that none of these will supersede and that will cause these other kingdoms to fall. Watch what happens next, verse 46. The Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. And the king said, Daniel, surely God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. God is the God of gods. I just thought it was funny. Um, and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries. For you were able to reveal this mystery. That Daniel placed, then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished him with many gifts. And he made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all of his wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego chief ministers over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. So one minute, Daniel is being threatened to death, that if he does not interpret this dream, he will be killed. And the next minute, the king is bowing before Daniel. Context. He is a prisoner of war, exiled into this place and forced to work for the government. This Jewish exile is now being bowed to by King Nebuchadnezzar. This is the upside-down kingdom. Jesus says in Matthew, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. A poor, displaced Jew is now being exalted in Babylon. The place that he was carried into for his own demise has now become, he's been given authority and responsibility over the majority of the kingdom, second only to Nebuchadnezzar himself. Think about that. This is the nature of the kingdom. Now notice that Daniel didn't take up sword and shield or fight for his way or get a good campaign or a rally. Daniel was faithful with what was right before his face and God showed him favor. Now I know what you're thinking. What on earth does this story have to do for us? Like, do I, if one day my boss is like, you need to interpret this dream for me, do I like follow this as a blueprint? Or, you know, what, is, what, is that, what does this mean for us? What's important for us to understand is the Bible is full of Easter eggs. Like if you're a Marvel fan, Marvel is full of like Easter eggs, little tiny cameos and things that draw you back to other pieces and other movies. The Bible is that. The Bible always assumes you know other parts of the Bible because the purpose of the scriptures is not like a one-time read and you're like, did it, conquered it, read it, done. It's actually ancient Jewish meditation literature, which means you spend your whole life in it. And you go back and you read and you read again and you read again and you sit and you let it soak. And it's got all these Easter eggs that are supposed to tie to one another all throughout the entire story. Now, I want you to think closely about this image, this statue. Some of your translations have idol translated there, but some of yours actually have image. 
And I want you to think about a story in the scriptures where human beings are called to rule as an image. Any guesses? Bible trivia. Whoever gets this, you get one of the kids' candies. Huh? Genesis, exactly. Who was made in the image of God? We were. Genesis chapter 1. Check this out. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image. Get this guy a candy, by the way. Let, let, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and over all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own what? Image. The image of God he created in the image of God he created them male and female he created them and God blessed them and he said be fruitful increase in number fill the earth and subdue it rule over all of the fish in the sea over all the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground now notice the language that Daniel uses when he talks about the king's responsibility he has been given he says that he's ruler over the animals and over the birds on the ground and over the sea the fish in the sea why would he say that was it by accident? Did Nebuchadnezzar have supernatural power to control the birds in the sky? Was that a part of his... He's drawing back to this idea in Genesis. That as human beings, we've been given responsibility and authority to rule. Now, I know what you think. Rule is not a common word that we use, right? If you're a manager at Subway, you don't say, I rule the Subway, right? You don't, we don't think in these terms, right? Or if you're some sort of an overseer or a boss, you're not like, I rule all of you. Welcome to my kingdom, right? You may have a boss you think might think that they rule over the kingdom, right? But that's not really the language that we're comfortable with. But it is the language of the scriptures. That as human beings, we've been in responsibility, authority, to co-rule with God here on earth. To be stewards of the earth. That our responsibility was to take the raw materials of the world and to create something beautiful alongside God. And then also in that was to multiply, was to have family, was to expand as a family and grow in number. This is the commission of Genesis. What Daniel is trying to say here is that as human beings, we've given, been given responsibility and authority. Now, each of our responsibility and authority is different, right? The CEO of a company has a different authority responsibility does than like a team leader or a manager, right? A father and a mother have a house, of a household have a different role than the children or the grandchildren, right? There's all these different dynamics and as far as rule and responsibility, but each of us have been given a responsibility. You need to know that in your life, you've been given authority and responsibility over the people that you have. And the big question is, what are you going to do with it? This prophetic critique is this. We have two kingdoms that we're really wrestling with. We have the kingdom, the eternal kingdom, and the, the, the kingdoms of men. And when we choose to partner with God, we choose to build the eternal kingdom. But when we choose to build in our selfishness and our rebellion and with our own self-consumed minds, we build towards the kingdom that perishes. This is what Daniel is trying to say here. Now, what this is trying to do is this story in Daniel is trying to invite you back into the larger story. What you have to understand about the Bible is this. The Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. I can't express this enough. It is not a cookbook or a recipe for how you live your life. It is not like a fortune cookie for, you know, what, little wisdom today, boop, right? That's not, it's a story, and the story all leads to Jesus. Now, there's different literature and there's different authors, but the purpose and intent of the scriptures, it's a unified story that all leads to Jesus, and so we need to have a better comprehension of the entire story as a whole. I talked in the beginning about this, about the power of stories, right? Have you ever been in a situation where somebody totally botched a story? Like, just totally ruined it. Like, you and them were at the same place, and then you give them, like, the, the, the great privilege of sharing the story. Like, oh, you go ahead, you tell, right? And then they start telling the story, and they ruined it. And you know they ruined it when they end the story saying, oh, I guess you had to be there. No, you ruined the story. You made, you, somehow you missed a detail, you jumped too far, you didn't say the punchline, you said it weird, whatever it was, right? And you've been there like, dude, now we, what are we going to do? We go tell somebody else and I'm going to tell it this time, you know? It's like, there's nothing worse than a botched story, a story that has been ruined, right? Or in the middle of them telling the story, they're like, wait, what happened again? Do you remember? Were we there or were we there? Or was he there? You're like, just get to the point of the story, right? There's nothing worse than a botched story. And I think as followers of Jesus, we've botched the story of the scriptures. There's a half story, and then there's the whole story. The half story that's always been told is this. You're born a sinner, you have life through Jesus' resurrection, and you wait for heaven. 
That's the common story that's all being told. Now, there's elements of that that are absolutely true, right? But that's what you hear first and foremost. Anyone jumping out the gate, tell somebody what this Bible means. You're a sinner. You need Jesus. When you get Jesus, we just hope other people get Jesus, and then we wait here for him to come back, and then he comes back. He's going to take care of all the evil people, and we just chill in this ethereal place where we all float up with wings and harps and sing worship songs forever, amazing grace, till we die. Does that sound like a compelling story? If you're somebody who's like an atheist or something, right, and you, like, don't believe in God, and someone tells you, look, dude, this is the good news about Jesus. You're a terrible human being. Don't worry. He's got your back. He's going to save you. When he saves you, we just wait here to have a perpetual worship service in heaven for all, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, right? So stop doing the bad things you're doing and take this story. That's a terrible narrative. That's a bad story, right? There's elements of that story that are true, right? We are all sinners, Right? Jesus does save us, but they're missing two major elements. So let's talk about what the whole story is. The whole story starts in Genesis. You were made in the image of God. You are what Bible scholars call called the Imago Dei, made in the image of God. That you're not trash, that you're not just somehow came together. You were beautifully, fearfully, and wonderfully made. And that the God of the universe loves you, loves you immensely. And wants to work with you. That you're not just the stepchild who's coming in and ruining everything. But actually in God's eyes, he wants to partner with you to build something beautiful. The commission in Genesis was for us to create culture. For us to create cities. For us to create places of beautiful art and worship and and, and beautiful things. Movies and all kinds of stuff. This is the picture of Eden. It's not just like this garden where we just ate tomatoes and waited for God all day. But it was actually this, we we were commissioned to make a city. A city built with God. This was our intent. But what happened? Sin into the world. We decided that we wanted to determine good and evil for ourselves. So we brought sin into the world. And when we perpetuate sin, we destroy God's good world. But the story doesn't end there. Right? God and his eternal immense love for you. Because he thinks so highly of you and because he loves you so much, would leave eternal fellowship in heaven. Come and be wrapped in flesh as a man. Humiliate himself. Be crucified on a cross. They are bearing the weight of sin and death. And they're destroying the powers and the works of evil and burying that in the grave. And three days later, rising with him, rising, bringing with him eternal life that he now imparts to you. And as he gives you this eternal life, he doesn't just give you a promise of a better future, but he gives you the power of his spirit. The same power that rose Jesus from the grave lives inside of you right now. And he says, I want you to take that power and I want you to build something beautiful. I want you to partner with me here on Project Human, Project Earth, and I want us to build something beautiful together until I come again. And then I will establish my rule, my reign here on earth as it is in heaven. And that's the whole story. Is that not compelling? That the God of the universe wants to work with you. All your failures, all your quirks, all the things people have ever said, about, doesn't even matter. God wants to work with you and building a beautiful future. This is the whole story. Now to be a creative minority, this is the compelling story of God that we live into. We don't just start at the fall and people being sinners. We start at you were made. You are loved. All these great things about you, how you're an artist or how you love literature or these beautiful expressions that come out of you whenever you're hilarious. All that stuff is just God shimmering through you, his creativity. And that we as humans rebelled against God and brought sin and brokenness and pain and tragedy into our world. But God in his great love has sent his son to heal us of those things and is now commissioning us out into the world to bring his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven through his presence. This is the story that we live into every single day. And it is out of this story that Daniel lives his life. It is out of this story that Daniel can tell a king who at, least, at the least we could say is a little insecure. Has a bad dream, kills some dudes because they couldn't tell him what it meant, right? And I think it was, it was such an insecurity for the king because he realized that this dream had some sort of significance to himself. And it was so insecure that Daniel could come to him with authority and say, hey, look, man, you're awesome, you're great, you're leading a big nation, but let me tell you something, you're not the guy. There's another kingdom that's coming. With authority and with certainty because of the story that Daniel knows that he lives in. 
he serves another king entirely. And he lives for a different kingdom, this kingdom that will come and that will be established as a mountain. Now, now that we've understand the whole story, what is the story God is writing for your life? Now that we know the better story, what is the story God's writing for you as an individual? Now, this is where it gets a little hairy. And this is where, honestly, Christians, we get freaked out. We use words like calling and do that so heavy, you know? It's like, it's my calling to do this. It's my calling. Or I just don't feel called, right? We have this language, and I just I don't think that it's super helpful. Uh, I love the idea, um, but I just don't think it's super helpful because it puts a lot of pressure and I think young people feel a lot of pressure coming in, like, what am I supposed to do? And what am I supposed to do? And even people who are in different seasons of life feel a lot of pressure that now that things have changed, now that we're empty nesters, or now that we're doing this different season of life, now what is our calling supposed to be? Or a job or an occupation changes? There's all this pressure around it. And so what I want to do for us is to paint a picture of purpose for us. As we learn, fundamentally, there's two competing kingdoms, right? How do we be a part of the eternal kingdom and building that? The first I'd say is this. The spiritual paradigm for following Jesus, for what's your purpose here on earth, first starts with this. Love God, love people, listen to the Spirit. Love God, love people, listen to the Spirit. When Jesus is confronted, somebody comes and asks him and says, out of all the scriptures, out of everything in the Bible, out of all that there is for us, what are the two most important, or what is the most important command? And Jesus says this, to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus says. He says that's the whole thing summed up. Well, it can't be that. It's, that. it's that simple. It's not easy to do. That's a different category. But that's how simple it is. Love God, love people. And I believe Paul would add on there and listen to the Spirit as people of the Spirit. As you're making decisions in your life, the first framework is, is this decision helping me love God more? If the answer is no, then that's not your purpose. Is this decision is this occupation, is this task that I'm taking on, is this people that I have in my life, are they helping me love God more? If the answer is the no, then it's not your purpose. The next question is, is this helping me love other people? Right? If what I'm doing is just self-seeking and self-serving and all about me and it orbits all around me, then probably not. It's loving God, loving people, and the last thing is listening to the Spirit. So if it meets those first two check marks, if it meets loving God and it meets loving people, the next thing is I'm saying, listen to the Spirit. Just pause and take the same and say, God, is this what you want us to do? Is this where I should be? Is this what you're doing? And listen closely to the people around you and the way God speaks through them and what the Lord would have for you. The next paradigm that we say is this. The next category is this. It's be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what Jesus did. And this is our paradigm for spiritual formation. This is, what we, this is how we ultimately become like Jesus is by being with him, becoming like him, and doing what he did. So being with him, and this is all adapted out of uh, the famous passage in Micah, to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. It's first and foremost being with Jesus, that everything that you do is about your relationship with him. There's nothing that exists or happens outside of that that is outside of that. It's all about being with Jesus, having a relationship with him, walking with him. And the next thing is become like Jesus. So allowing God by way of his spirit to change you. To become more like Jesus, right? When we say we're followers of Jesus, that's not just a special category, but it's describing the way that we live. We follow the teachings of Jesus. We follow in the way of Jesus. And lastly is to do what Jesus did. And this is the one I think the church fails at so miserably, is we just fail to just actually do the things Jesus did. Take his teachings and put them into practice, as Jesus says at the end of uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And so this is our paradigm for spiritual formation. This is how we become more like Jesus, is being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. And the last one, specifically to purpose, I don't have a cool name for this, but we'll call it the circle of calling. Just made that up. Hope it sticks. Um, there's really four things that I like to talk about when it comes to our purpose. The first is gifts. Each one of you has been given gifts. Now, I know you're like, oh, I'm not gifted like everybody. You're gifted. God has put his creativity inside of you. Now, with all the false humility and other stuff aside, you really know God has given you gifts. Whatever it is, whether it's fashion or writing or it's organizing or administration or spreadsheets or, I don't know, architecture, whatever it is, God has given you gifts. He's placed his creativity inside of you. The one who created creativity created you, so you're creative, all right? God's placed that inside of you, and he's given you gifts. And God wants to use those gifts in you to bless the world, to bless the people around you, to bless our city. 
So your calling always kind of starts off with areas of gifting. What am I good at? What has God made me to do? And operating and making decisions based off that. The next one is heart. What do I care about? What matters to me? You've been in those situations, in those circumstances where you've been around people who don't feel the same way that you feel about something, right? Like you're passionate about something and then you kind of realize you didn't read the room well and you're like ranting and raving about something that nobody cares about, right? And each of us have these areas. Like for me, I feel really bad, but people bring up the Bible around me and that's really a bad decision because I will go and go and go. We had friends over for dinner several weeks ago and I felt bad. They're like, so what do you think about this? And I'm all, what do I think about this? Let's start in Genesis, right? And I was like, and like 45 minutes into my lecture, I realized I was all, you kind of went a little too far, you know? But we all have these things that we're passionate about, right? Or someone gets you talking about makeup or hair or cars or something, right? Oh, I like your car. Oh, this is the 457 dual block. Whatever you start going into, they're all, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right? We all have things that we're passionate about that, that, just, that just make us excited. And these are areas where God usually wants to work. Here's the reality. There's all sorts of problems and areas that people could be ministered to and needed But if we're honest, sometimes our heart's just not there. But there's areas where our heart burns within us. It is in those areas that we must pay careful attention because it is often in those areas that God wants us to tap into our purpose. The next is work. Now, one thing I really hate that the church has done is they've separated work and church into two separate categories and been like, your work's your work, but the work you do for the church is different, right? This is sacred. This is holy. What you do Monday through Friday is secular. That's the furthest thing from the truth. When God commissions Adam and Eve to cultivate the ground and to make a city, to, to, build this, to build this culture, he didn't mean just in the spiritual sense, where we spiritually, he meant literally till the ground, build a hut, right? Start doing things, start working. Working is what it also means to be human. Now, contrary to what you might believe, work is not a part of the fall, right? Work is not a part of like when sin came in, now you got to work. No, right? It was a part of the beginning. We were created to work. I know some of you are probably at a job right now that you don't love. And so you think about not working. If, so you, if you could somehow not work and survive, you're like, that sounds great. The first two weeks would be incredible. There'd be so much hostess donuts and Netflix and naps. You'd be ecstatic. After you gained 15 pounds, you'd be like, now what do I do? Right? So you'd start tinkering with the things that made you happy, that you enjoyed doing or whatever it was, right? So after your time of like really deep, almost ungodly Sabbath, right, you'd come into this place of like, okay, now what do I'm actually excited about doing? And you'd play music or you'd draw or you'd paint or you'd start thinking about, it'd be really cool if we did this business idea where we did X, Y, and Z, or you'd start organizing or whatever it is that's in you would start coming out of you because you were made to work. You're made to do something with your life. And so for a lot of us, our purpose is directly tied to our work, right? So this is twofold. One, sometimes our work allows us to do the work that we're really passionate about, and then sometimes our work is what we're really passionate about, right? So for me, right now, I'm an estimator at a stucco company. When I was five years old, I did not dream of estimating for a stucco company. They're not like, what do you want to be? An estimator, you know? That was not something that I, I was excited or passionate about, you know? It's not something that I wake up in the morning, like, dreaming about, like, all oh, the things, the numbers we could put together. But... It allows me to do what I love, which is this, which is teaching the Bible, which is talking to you guys about Jesus, which is loving these people, which is leading his church. And so I wake up in the morning, go to work because I get to do this. Work enables me to do the thing that I love the most. And for some of you, your work is what you're passionate about. It, it, it's, you, you, people may sound crazy, but like you're doing somebody's hair and you're like, you feel like God is with you and you're talking to this person and you're ministering and you're blessing. And, you're, and people be like, I think God's called me to be a hairdresser. And it's like a hairdresser, you know, it sounds like, but that is really the way God does things. And he puts those gifts and things inside of you to meet and to bless his people. Or whatever it is for you, if you're a receptionist or if you're a barista, if you're, you know, you love making those coffees and you love to bless people in the morning with a cup of coffee. And for you, it's really, it really is more, it's about art, it's joy for you. And that's definitely an area where God wants to bless you. And don't feel bad about it because you're not up here or up here doing anything. You're doing God's work where you are. Don't be mistaken. The last thing I want to say is, is, is mission. And this is where God just irreparably breaks your heart for a broken area of our world. The mission that God has given me when, I was, uh, when we were wanting to plant this church was very simple. We wanted to reach people who were far from Jesus, and we wanted to reach people who were burnt out on church. Those were our things. We realized that we're living in a post-Christian culture, which means that 
You know, it's not like when Paul and his uh, and the other disciples came and preached and they never heard of Jesus. We're in a culture that's turned from Jesus. Large in part for my own failures to be the church, to live and embody the teachings of Jesus, and also because of our culture. And so when me and my wife came together and we prayed, we just thought about the people who were just far from Jesus, who just never knew him, who have heard of him, who may have read about him in a history book, who have seen, you know, pictures or crosses of him or all that, 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 but don't know him. We said, God, we can't wait for you to meet him because when people meet Jesus, they don't leave the same. They're changed forever. And the people who are just burnt out on church, because, man, it's easy to get burnt out when there's been rules and regulations and things placed upon your shoulders. When the church starts becoming about politics or about um, uh, other agendas other than just Jesus, that sucks the life out of the room. And we said we wanted to build a house. People who are far from Jesus and people who are burnt out in church could come here and meet with him. And then he does what he does. He blesses, he speaks, he heals, he redeems, he restores. These four things in the circle of calling, as I've so cleverly named it, um, are how we think about what we do. I mean, for Daniel, when he was 14, you know, he didn't think, one day I'm going to be the leader of Babylon. But all he did is we, he brought his gifts, right? He brought his heart, he brought his work, and he brought his mission all to the same place, whatever was right before him. And he did that faithfully. And it, it ended up being from an exile to a leader in the Babylonian government because the hand of God was all over it. Now you bring the same thing that you have forward. You bring your gifts you bring your heart, you bring your work, and you bring mission forward, and you watch God go with your life. There's this phrase that I love out of Elevation Church where they say this, see what God could do through you. And when I look at this room, potential is busting at the seams. And you see yourself as just an every average, every ordinary, everyday ordinary person. And God sees the person he's placed his creativity in. And out of this room could flow beautiful, wonderful things into our city. The question is, what will we do with it? I'm going to ask the worship team to come out up now. And we're going to close in worship. I just want to invite you, I just want to ask you to spend time thinking about your purpose, why God has you here. And think about how you are actively investing in the kingdom of God. And then listening to whatever God says to you. I'm going to ask you to stand as we close now. I just want to pray a blessing over you. And then we'll go into worship together. Jesus, you have called every single person here. To see all the new content coming from Zion City, follow us on Instagram or like us on Facebook. And to partner with us financially, visit our website at zioncitychurch.net.